Can a marriage survive infidelity? We dig deep to explore this thorny question. Join me, Jean-Claude Chalmet, and founder of The Place Retreats and a featured columnist for The Times, with Amy Cooper and Louise Daniels, on The Place Retreats podcast. Search Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite Android app. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Welcome back to your next episode. I'm Amy. And I'm Louise. <laughs> How are you doing, Louise? I'm fine, thank you. Yeah, I'm, I was about to say I'm Louise the Invincible, as I'm now referring to myself, because I have had the vaccine. <laughs> da, da, so... da, 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 da. <laughs> um, and I think just got there just in the nick of time before some sort of this predicted stall in the rollout. And um, mm. so I'm very pleased that I had that on Saturday. And... Um, you know, I mean, sad face for you, Amy, but, you know, there's got to be a few perks to being um, over 50. And... It does feel like, it does feel like, um, you know, yeah. I, I, you know, I am Whatever. kind of like, I'm one of the, I'm one of the young ones. Okay, I can't, <laughs> I'm now branching myself in with the young guns and we're just yeah. taking one for the team, Yeah, I know. Well, you know, there, as I say, there's got to be perks to being over 50. And one of those is getting the vaccine and the other one is being able to, um, you know, gloat about it a bit. So, yeah, you know. Uh, basically, you're just going to be with a load of pensioners raving in Ibiza, aren't you? <laughs> I know, I know, I know. I, you know, I just, and also, you know, probably all you youngsters, you're not going to be able to go on a summer holiday. Um, no. But I will send you a, you know, a postcard from, from mine or rather, you know, I'll obviously be Instagram storying. Um, oh, I, it, I but, might you know. have to just delete the app that week. Yeah, there is, a, there is a danger. I think that I might get carried away this summer because, um, you know, I am someone who's easily led. I'm overexcitable. And um, I have a feeling that this summer there is going to be a lot of opportunity opportunity um to really whoop it up and i'm really there for that you know um so you know has anything remotely exciting happened for you amy this week um that no, compares we'll, to my vaccine we'll <laughs> just get left behind shall we we'll just get left behind yeah i have spoken to a few friends who work um in in the uh, in the nhs and so they well a few of them who work in doctor surgeries they've had their jabs and they're sort of like oh do you fancy doing this do you fancy doing that and i'm kind of like oh the freedom yeah to be able to just plan something well no I, I don't know if I'll be able to come to Glast- well Glastonbury's not happening is it but um, some other like festival or something I'm kind of like oh you're going to be there with your fully shielded uh, immunity I'll just be withering in the corner absolutely um, absolutely well no, I'm really you know. glad that you've had it done uh, and yeah uh, we've yeah. got to protect our our vulnerable and our <laughs> silly, <haven't> so. fuck <laughs> off <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay, so shall we move on to our guest yes. know, this week who has written a book that is so good that I've had to abandon the book that I'm actually reading uh, that I was already reading at the moment. So our guest this week is Professor Jane Monkton-Smith and she's written this book um, on the back of her groundbreaking research. It was that you know, it got so much attention into um, coercive relationships and how they escalate to murder. And the book's called in control, dangerous relationships and how they end in murder. Um, and as I say, I got it on Thursday. I haven't finished it, but it's fascinating, horrifying um, and totally unputdownable um, and really important because the numbers are so high and the society's quite frankly a bit clueless about the issues around it, really. Um, so this is stuff that we all need to start to hear and understand. Yeah, and if that if, if that does sound like, oh, um, I feel a bit sad today or I feel a bit down today, then, then maybe don't listen to it today. But I would suggest 
uh, that you do listen to it because there are so many little nuggets in there, isn't there? This, mm. we, we stumble across, I mean, probably not nothing that anybody's not stumbled across before, but we just about communicating this message. So mm. Jane is a former police officer. She's a world-renowned criminology expert. Um, enjoy this chat with her coming up next. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome, Jane, and thanks so much for being our guest today. So, um, and I think I said in the email, I struggle to shrink my questions down now that I've started reading your book, which is is such a good book, and I think I really gushed about it in the, in the email. So I'd really recommend anyone. We're going to talk about that. It's called In Control: Dangerous Relationships and How They End in Murder. Um, so, as I say, struggling to rein myself in with questions. So let's just focus on. The conversation that I know you feel needs to change for all of us, not just for the people who respond to um, domestic abuse and homicide. Um, but can we just start by asking you to introduce yourself? So who who are you and what do you do? Um, I'm Jane Monckton-Smith. I'm Professor of Public Protection at the University of Gloucestershire and my specialism is in homicide. Um, just recently, especially, I have been working a lot in intimate partner homicide. So your book, um, who would you say the book is for? Like, what, how, how has it come to you writing that? Well, I started off, um, the book is based on a piece of academic research that I did. I don't work full time as an academic, as it were. I work a lot outside of the university as well. And I was doing an awful lot of work with bereaved families, families bereaved through homicide. Um, and I was doing a lot of work as well with the police. And there just seemed to be this kind of disconnect between the families and the police and professional views and views of of victims which i wanted i wanted to bridge that gap but as the as the the the, uh, the research went on it was so important and when we published it as research it was like this tsunami of interest from both sides from victims from families and from from professionals as well. But you know what it's like with academic papers. They they can be very inaccessible. They can be difficult to read. And even myself as an academic, it's like wading through treacle with some of them, you know. Um, but it was so important. I just thought I'd write a book for everyone to understand this research. Mm-hmm. And you, you describe um, domestic homicide as a pandemic so pervasive that soaring figures cause weary resignation rather than alarm I thought it was a really interesting quote actually and um yeah when I do look at the figures I just feel so overwhelmed It's, it's like what do we do about this I mean firstly how prevalent are these domestic murders the domestic murders themselves that's the largest category of homicide we have for women dying Mm. And that's global. That's, you know, that's every country across the world has got Mm. the same problem. Um, 
so you know that makes that makes it rather alarming um, in in the uk we've got probably more than two a week happening and you know in some countries it's worse and i guess over lockdown it's been worse jane has it i mean that that's yes. that's a scary thing isn't it absolutely when when lockdown started last march for us the um within 30 days the the homicide rate had doubled women so you know it's this is a real problem and i'm and i'm doing some more work in fact which um is a project i call hidden homicides and that's Mm. revealing the homicides that we don't count so you know not only is our global femicide figures rising when homicide itself is going down we've also had this massive rise with the pandemic and then we've got these homicides we're not even counting. What do you mean by that we're not counting? Why aren't we counting? Well, um, a, lot, a lot of the work I do is kind of advocating for bereaved families and helping police as well with cold cases, uh, uh, you know, things like that. And these are all cases where the death has not been formally recorded as a homicide. Oh, but there are suspicions um, or there's not enough evidence to prosecute somebody or, you know, the evidence wasn't gathered at the time, people are still missing, but they all follow this eight-stage pattern. So that, you know, that raises suspicion. So the the numbers are bigger than we think even. Um, Can I just go back to, so uh, you know, at the core of everything you write or analyse is a woman that you talk about right at the beginning of of your book, um, that you were called out to as a newly qualified police officer in the early 80s. Um, Can you just tell us that story and what it was about her, her actions, those of her boyfriend that underlie your sort of understanding around coercive control and a domestic abuse and, and murder yes well you know i was i was newly qualified god i'm going to give my age away if i say this now i mean <laughs> I, was, I, I was about 19 years old when i went to this call so um and i went with a very experienced sergeant who was because i was still being supervised at that time so we went we went into this house and uh Paramedics had got there before us. So they're standing with this young girl, um, probably about my age, if not younger, in fact. She's just sitting there, just staring. She's not talking, she's not moving, but she's got um, blood trickling down the back of her, her neck. And the paramedics said to us, well, she's been hit in the head with a lump hammer by her boyfriend. So they were really concerned that she would have maybe a fractured skull or, or something like that. So they were trying to talk her into getting into the ambulance and going to the hospital with them. She just wouldn't do it. She would not get in the ambulance. She just sat there. She sat quietly. Her boyfriend's gone. He'd he'd gone. He wasn't anywhere to be found. And, you know, me and my sergeant looking at each other thinking, well, if she won't get in the ambulance, she's not going to support prosecution. And you can only stay so long you know you've got voices in your ear Mm. you've got other jobs to go to and in the end we had to leave Mm. all of us the paramedics me and my sergeant and i was just thinking what why why won't she get in the ambulance Mm. this is crazy i'd never come across anything like this before Mm. and he said he just said to me jane oh get used to it this is what they're like and you know, as I say in the book, he was a lovely man, really kind, really lovely man. So he wasn't saying it out of any, you know, he, he wasn't being nasty or prejudiced. No. But um, I thought, what kind, of, what kind of answer is that? That doesn't explain anything because mm. what he's actually saying, isn't he, is domestic abuse victims behave differently to the rest so, of us. Like, yeah, so, yeah, so then when he said referred to that's what they are like, he meant... Mm domestic abuse victims like so different to yeah so they don't they don't think like us they're they're this special group of women who are a bit weird and we can't work out why they behave they do like they do but they do so we just accept it that was his answer to me um and as i say there was nothing nasty in that answer but you know (laughs) it, it the thing is these days I still, we're still asking the same question. We mm. are still saying, why won't they prosecute? Yeah, why why do don't they, they leave? Yeah. Mm. yeah. Okay. And it's interesting because I guess, uh, like you say, he was a, a, an experienced sergeant, but it was that almost that weary resignation that you spoke of, of what can we actually do? 
well, we don't have any powers to arrest her and put her in the ambulance or we can't make... He's obviously seen this over and over and over again. Um, and like you say, not nothing has changed, has it? Uh, and we're talking mainly, aren't we, about women being murdered by men here? Oh, we definitely are. And, yeah. and that is... I do talk about men being killed by women in the mm. book as well. But when you look at the statistics, mm. it, this is really a gendered problem. So, you know, 82%, if you go from what the um, the United Nations say, it's, you know, it's 82% of victims will be women. Um, of the 18% left, about half of them at least will be um men murdered by another man, so gay men murdered mm -hmm. by a male partner. And of that, say, 9% left, a proportion of them will be women responding to domestic abuse. Self-defense, yeah. Self-defense. And then you've got this, this kind of 5%, 6% proportion left who are actually killing their husbands for much the same reason that husbands kill their wives. Mm -hmm. But you can see the numbers are so telling you can't really say this is a problem that affects men and women equally no, okay. yeah and i think it's quite interesting as well I've, I've seen a lot of stuff over the last few weeks especially with everything that's happened of um it, uh, louise and i've talked about this uh, uh, you tend, tend to get it a lot with these women that are in their sort of 60s maybe they've got all boys uh, that's not all the time, but it just seems to be a pattern that I've seen follow where it's like that this sort of, well, women kill men as well in relationships and the hashtag not all men thing that that does seem to be. And as you say, the, the, the statistically, you cannot you cannot compare the two, can you? Not with homicide. You really, you really can't. There is no argument to say that there's any parity at all. And that is globally acknowledged. Just going back to thinking about the, so the behaviour and what your understanding around all of this is. So when these men murder their partners, it is rarely an isolated incident, is it? Is it? You know, uh, it's not like a sudden flipping out, losing their temper in an out of character way, is it? No, it isn't. Um, but that is the way we've explained it mm. for is millennia. That that crimes of passion thing. Mm. Yeah. Okay. Yes. Yeah, so. And you know, in some countries, the crime of passion defence is actually written into the law. Wow. You know, we're we're actually saying this is what happens with um, intimate partner homicides, and that that I'm afraid is half the problem. Right. Mm. Okay. So we'll in a minute we'll move on to your because that's where your eight stage um, homicide timeline sort of came in. But you yeah. know those myths that we keep believing about victims and perpetrators of abuse, you know, along the crimes of passion thing. Why do we believe them? Do you think? Well, they're ready-made stories. I mean, it's been part of our storytelling for you know since we started telling stories mm. that this is why men kill their partners is because they get a bit jealous or they get a bit angry and the red mist comes down and mm. in a moment of passion they grab the nearest weapon and kill their wife. The evidence you know just says that that is a complete myth. I mean, I could swear and say it's a load of, but yeah. it's a complete yeah. myth. Yeah. yeah, right. So it's a pattern, isn't it, that builds up? Like you say, it's not just out of the blue. It's no. it's those things that get normalised, isn't it? Would you talk us through the eight-stage homicide timeline, Jane? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'll just be very, very brief yeah. about each stage. But we start at stage one focusing just on the perpetrator. So this is before they've even met anybody else. So that throws out of the water straight away that it's a dynamic between two people that if they just left each other, you know, this wouldn't happen. Everybody could go back to having a quiet life. That is not what's happening. These people will be the same irrespective of who their partner is. Mm. So, um, uh, the, the way that I kind of characterise stage, stage one is to say this person has a history. Mm. So if they have a history of abuse or stalking or violence, then that means they're going to behave like that in every relationship they have. So it's a really good red marker, mm. somebody who might be very difficult to be in a relationship with. Before you go on to the other stages, <laughs> can I just ask about that one? Because yeah. this is the one that stood out for me as, so should we be checking before we start a relationship, how do we do that? Yeah, yeah, we should. Absolutely, we should. Because um, if, you, you know, 
let's just say for argument's sake they're a type Mm. they are a type so you should then perhaps look for those characteristics and even if you're not going to leave that person at least you will educate yourself into what might be up ahead for Mm. you and may not be taken in by so much of the gaslighting and and you know some of the things that are said to justify the the control that that's probably coming up ahead Mm. I'm just thinking as ever Jane this is what I do um on this podcast I kind of like overshare uh and then think (laughs) about my own experience and I do think about exes that I've had who have been you know that thing where they're checking your phone and uh and and obviously at the time being in my 20s thinking oh I can't be arsed with this fuck off um that doesn't necessarily mean that that ex of mine will then go on to kill somebody but you're saying that it's just a pattern of uh what what if if they meet somebody further along the line and it, uh, um so what you're saying is it, it's not necessarily we can't keep looking at the woman of like oh she brought that she brought that murderous side out in him <laughs> is it is it just sort of like in your dna personality like i've said very very broadly speaking we could say they are a type mm. right okay so however they came to be that type there are multiple routes to that obviously there Mm. will be some of them will have maybe antisocial personality disorders some of them must just maybe very dependent people Mm. who are dependent on the relationship for their identity and their status and all sorts of things but but then you overlayer that with the messages from society and culture Mm. and religion and law that all say Basically, men are entitled to control their families, entitled to control their partners. And we don't have to look at, you know, if you look globally, there are still countries in the world where that is actually explicitly still written into the law. Mm. Mm. So you get somebody who's maybe dependent or narcissistic, who is also being taught this is your right. Mm. And then... You know, that justifies everything Mm. they do. We'll let you carry on with the homicide title. So the first point is that pre-relationship history. It is. Mm. Having a history, but the the big red flags, possessiveness, jealousy, and trying to control you. Massive red flags. So the the second stage is when um, when you meet this person, you know, or this person meets somebody they want to be in a relationship with. And there's two things that characterize this, what I call the early relationship stage. Um, And that is speed and commitment. So they will try, in most cases, to try and push the relationship to to beginning at a very fast speed. They'll justify this through the language of passion again. Whirlwind, romance, yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But the real sinister thing that I found in this stage wasn't so much the speed. Lots and lots of people go at speed. Shouldn't do, but they do. Um, Is the commitment bit. So in this very controlling person's head, who feels entitled to have some control, once you give them a commitment or they perceive that you've given them a commitment, you can never actually withdraw that. Mm. That's it. You've kind of signed a contract in blood in their head. You won't necessarily know that. Mm. You won't know that. But once they have the commitment, they feel then that they've got all those rights that society Mm. gives them. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and at that stage, then once the commitment is given, it's it can be. I'm not saying they all end in murder because they don't. No. But the the relationship will probably very quickly move to being very controlling. Mm. Okay, so that's that's that second point. So moving on, third point is uh, relationship. And yeah, so you've yeah. been through you you've given somehow you've given a commitment to this person, and they they take their commitment in different ways. For some of them, it's first time you have sex with them. You know that'll be it. That's wow. what they think. Yeah. Um, but that that so once you've given that commitment, you you're then in that we're in a relationship together stage. Uh, and this is the stage that um, will be quite controlling. They will try and have control and influence over everything that you do. For some, that control will be intense and it will be absolutely awful. For some, um, maybe it won't be violent, but you'll be still kind of treading on eggshells yeah. around them. 
Mm-hmm. If you know what I mean? Yeah. I'd better not do this or it's not worth it. I'm not going to do that because it's just not worth it. I think that's something you said earlier, isn't it? Yeah. It's just not worth it. Um, and this stage can go on for three weeks mm. or 50 odd years. Right. Yeah. And uh, it also, as you're sort of talking about that, like we, we've all known people who have partners who were that, that treading on eggshells. So it's not it's not necessarily you go, oh my god, they're coercive control, and they're really abusive, and they're but that if you're having to tread on eggshells around someone and be like, oh yeah, yeah, mm, yeah, it's sorry, re- yeah, mm. and and sometimes the the control comes in, and and it's a, it's like stealth almost sometimes. Mm. For some, it really is not. Mm. And you might find yourself when you wake up one day and think, I oh God, I don't I can't do anything. Or I don't yeah. want to do this because I know I won't go and see my mum because if I go and see my mum, there there'll just be consequences to that. Oh, so I can't, yeah. you know. And then you find yourself get your life getting smaller and, yeah. smaller, and smaller. Because friends become a bad influence, yeah. don't they? And other yeah. other outside influences become um well that they're leading you astray don't they it's so insidious it's so subtle and actually i am thinking about the archers as we're talking do you remember that storyline with helen archer Um, and 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 i guess even these conversations that we're having if we're talking about it more i mean i guess in some societies like you were saying jane this wouldn't even be a conversation that we could have but I guess if we if we are at least getting those signs, especially to our daughters and our sons, actually. Yeah, absolutely. It should be going out to everybody that mm. this is, you know, we've got to start telling boys and men in many, many different ways. You don't own your families mm. and your partners and your children. You don't own them you have no right to own them mm. so then we've got uh the fourth point. yeah the, the fourth stage um is what we call the, the trigger stage when we're talking about a homicide timeline um this is usually separation so coercive control this this relationship part is actually designed to trap somebody in the relationship it's that commitment thing it's to stop them leaving nothing to mm. do with love Mm. nothing to do with love a lot of these people are in multiple relationships uh, you know they're having affairs and things and they will be equally as controlling of all of the people they're in relationships with this mm. is in them this is not in this is not the victim's uh, fault mm. so the biggest <clears throat> trigger is separation or something that suggests separation will come as a result of a you know a different life happening so if we just accept for the moment that it's separation because that is by far far the most common then you've got a situation where everything they've been guarding against everything that they have been putting in place has now been challenged and that's when the danger starts to rise which is what pushes us then into stage five okay so stage five is a response to this challenge maybe she said i'm leaving you Mm. maybe he thinks she's having an affair you know, so when we go into stage five, this is like what I call the escalation stage. So there's a response to the trigger. Usually that response will be to escalate all of the control tactics so that they regain the control they thought they'd lost or had lost. It's at this stage that we really find out how dangerous somebody is. Um, so in this stage, stalking usually starts. Mm. So Let's just say, for example, the relationship doesn't get back together. The, the woman says, no, I'm, I'm done. That's it. I'm, I'm staying gone. Now, it might be that that person eventually stops stalking, stops harassing, whatever. They circle back then to stage one with somebody with a history. Mm-hmm. It could be, and this happens in so, so many cases, the relationship actually does get back together because either the, wo- the woman is scared not to go back mm. or feels sorry for the person. Because, you know, escalation tactics can be begging and crying. Yeah. Mm. It's not all about necessarily nasty violence and, and things like that. And also those women are just human. And if you've been told over and over again by somebody that no one will love you the way that yeah. I do, nobody's going to adore you the way and worship you the way that I do, and then you're on your own, you're just human and, and you're... Yeah, I can I can see how that that pattern happens. Well, what they often do is go back to the love bombing kind of yeah. 
behaviors but some of them i mean for an awful lot of women it's actually fear of leaving they're mm. too scared to leave and going back and getting back into the nice stage of the relationship is safer than thinking no i'm just gonna i i can't do this anymore mm. you know because you need a lot of things in place you've got kids with this person yeah. you know you can't just walk away and that's the end of them. And, you know, the, the most important thing we, we need to remember is leaving someone does not end the abuse. Mm. So when we say, why don't you just leave? In our heads, in our heads, we're thinking, well, if you just left, the abuse would stop. Of course, it doesn't. It won't. It carries on into stage five. And that can be so very difficult to deal with and frightening. So we see a lot that the relationship gets back together. And we see couples circling between stages three, four, five, three, four, five, three, four, five, on this endless cycle where, you know, the challenges keep happening, whatever they might be. And then everything gets back together. The most dangerous thing is when that neither of those things happens. So doesn't go back to stage one, doesn't go back to stage three, moves on to stage six. That's that's when we get real danger. Mm. So up to stage five, you know, that's practically every domestic abuse relationship. Mm. Right. Stage six is not. It, that's when we start to get quite specific. So stage six is those... Um, that sort of change in thinking. Yeah. Shall I just explain the change in thinking? Yes, please. Yeah. Um, and other academics have kind of um, s explained this. So there, there's uh, professors Russell and Rebecca Dobash, who are domestic abuse um, researchers for years now. They said the kind of game changes from keeping the person in the relationship to punishing them for leaving it. Right. But, you know, if you wanted it in a headline, I suppose, yes. that really captures right. it. That's what's right. happening. So stage six is about, OK, we've moved on. I don't want her back now. It's it, Or it's irretrievable. What am I going to do with it about this? How am I going to resolve it? And um, in stalking research, this kind of change in thinking is referred to a little bit as last chance thinking. Mm. So it's that kind of right it's either going to be this or this. And in this stage six is where they decide how they're going to resolve it. And a lot of them at this stage may decide uh, to homicide. Wow. Mm. Yeah. So, yeah, not, yeah. So it's not a, it's, it's a thought through thing. Yes. And some of them will have had that thought in their head the entire relationship. Yeah. yeah. Since stage two or three. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Some of them won't. It depends on the individual. They're not all the same. No, mm. no. No, okay. And then we move on to stage seven. Stage seven is the one that um, I think causes people the most difficulty. And there's a lot of resistance to thinking about stage seven because that's the planning stage. Now, if we believe in the crime of passion, the planning no stage planning does stage. not exist. No. It doesn't mm. exist. So you're trying to push that, that wall down where people are saying crime of passion and say, ah, no, planning. Mm. I'm sorry, mm. planning. And depending on the personality type of perpetrator, the planning stage could last 12 hours or it could last, in one of our cases in the research, nearly 18 months. Wow. God. Yeah. But it does exist. Yeah. I know it's a, it's a horrible message to have to put out there, but it really does exist. Yeah, yeah. yeah. we need to know this, don't we? Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, Absolutely. And, and I know the conversation now, we're, we're, it's getting very very down and, and it's not nice to think about this. It really, really isn't. But if we don't start thinking about this in this way, we're not going to be able to keep women safe. Mm. And we'll be having this conversation 30 years from now, mm. won't we? Mm -hmm. And also, and I'm sure this will happen for lots of people listening, as you're going through those stages, I'm thinking I, immediately I've got friends popping into my head that I'm like, I know this is I know this has happened. I, I recognize what you're saying as a stage. I mean, I haven't had any friends who've been killed, but uh, but, the, you know, the just everything you're saying, I'm recognizing it. So it's it, it's out there. We yeah. know. It really is, yeah. And, you know, when we back, back at the beginning when we were talking about how huge the numbers are, 
it sort of like was a surprise to me how big the numbers were. But then when I stopped and think about it, I'm like, no, when I sit with my friends and we talk about relationships that we've all had throughout our lives, because we're all in our 50s now, um, you know, we will go back to, and, you know, there are some that we will laugh, we'll laugh about them because thankfully we... Lucky escape. We didn't stay in those relationships. Mm. But then there are things that you're like, oh my God, like that behaviour was exactly what you're you know, what you're describing here. Um, mm. And so stage eight is the homicide. And that can that can also, you know, play out in many ways. Um, mm -hmm. It can be a homicide, suicide, missing person. Children get killed too. Um, other people get can get killed too. Yeah. It's, it, you know, it, it's a very highly dangerous situation. Yeah. Basically, when it ends in that homicide, you can go back and almost always see those eight stages. Yes. And this is what people need to be aware of. So I suppose, what could I do if I knew of someone, I'm listening to this and going, hang on a minute, what what can I do to support that person uh, to get out of that situation? Because again, we go back to what that police officer said in, in that case, donkey's years ago, your first, you know, about, oh, that's the way they behave. And if, why do victims behave like we well, talked about it a bit that it, because mm. they're scared? What, well, what can we do? It's about consequences. Well, really, what we have to recognise is um, that the way domestic abuse victims think is the same way all of us think. Mm. There's nothing different about them at all. And most of the time, they are making quite skilled decisions about their own safety. So if they're saying to you, I'm not going to leave... There's a reason for that, and it will be a logical reason. Um, so, you know, if you've, got, if you've got a situation, what I should have said, right, to the, the woman who wouldn't get in the ambulance, which I didn't know then, but I would say to her now is, what are the consequences of you getting in this ambulance? That's what I would have would say now to her. Mm. And she might say to me, if I get in that ambulance, you'll bloody kill me. Mm. And then, all of a sudden, she's not this weird person who we don't understand. And I could then say, well, do you think there's anything we could do to make you safer so that when he finds out that you've been in the ambulance, you know, your safety is assured? Those are the kinds of con uh, conversations that we should be having. We should always remember that whatever, whether the, the, the victim thinks the relationship is happy or doesn't. It doesn't really matter. No. Always speak to them about what would happen if, mm. so that you then are saying to them, I understand that you're not just making stupid decisions, mm. which is yeah. a very judgmental yeah. approach to take anyway, isn't it? Yeah. What are the consequences for you of making this decision? Right. Mm. Right. And then what try and get something in place for them well you know it the trouble is this is so this is a long game sometimes yeah. sometimes yeah. it's a short game so when you're talking about somebody's safety that's that's what your you know that's where your focus must be so if you've got a friend they're in a relationship you know they're not actually going to leave yet they they might in the future so there, there are things you can do you must never approach the perpetrator ever do not do that because the consequences of that mm, for the victim God. are too much. But you can do things like you can keep an emergency pack in your house, money, clothes, ID, you know, all of those kinds of things that this person may need if they take the decision to leave um, and they think it's dangerous. You can be that person who listens, who lets them know that there is somebody they can trust outside of the relationship who isn't going to make things worse because mm. they understand. Going to the police can be very much, well, if you're not going to prosecute, we can't do anything for you. Already they've shown that they don't understand, mm. but there are consequences mm. for me of that. I, I do think the police are getting much, much better. It, do, yeah. it is going to take some more training so that that, ni that next 19-year-old police officer or, or however old they are, experienced they are, can ask those questions. Mm. Um, and I don't know, perhaps other services getting involved at, at that at that stage? Or? Well, it, it needs to be multi-agency training, mm. doesn't it? Mm. But, but the, the most frustrating thing I have come across is our courts. Yeah. It's the courts that no matter, you can have a police officer who's trained up to their eyebrows mm. 
They know exactly what to say. They know exactly what to do. They, you know, we're going to get this guy with a restraining order. We're going to lock him up, whatever they're going to do. And then it gets to court. All, all bets are off. Mm. And that's, you can't guarantee for the victim then what's going to happen. So it's actually safer to not maybe roll that ball. Yeah. And also, I guess they, they're in danger of making promises that they can't keep. Yes, exactly. And then once that happens, the trust is gone and it is, in fact, safer to stay. Mm. So, so we, yeah, but so if you're so if you're supporting somebody that mm-hmm. you know is going through this, and you've spoken to them, and 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 they have confided in you, and you you your role there then is to be a support and to have those practical things in place. Offer to have those practical things in place. What do you do if you are if that say your friend's uh, husband or your let's say maybe your mum's new partner or something you know are you then do you then be friendly towards that person because you said you don't approach them because that will make it worse so do you keep up a pretense of you go along with in front of everybody oh we're all acting as if everything's fine you keep that secret from that from the perpetrator that might be what you have to do so you uh, just but, uh, you would talk to the victim yeah. about that. Yeah, yeah. Um, you might want to go and punch them on the nose. Yeah. You know, <laughs> and and you know a lot of people would feel like that. And I think um, I've just been through this with my own daughter, so yeah. I absolutely yeah. know yeah. what this feels like. Yeah. Um, and she, to be fair, was terrified that I would say something in front of him that was critical. Yeah. So I didn't. So you were just friendly and. I, I was non-critical. Yeah. I did yeah. treat him very neutral. I, I, to be, I wasn't mates with him. I couldn't manage that. But no. some, some people are in the position where they have to be. Yeah. And really, because so many victims um, are pressurised through this kind of loyalty requirement to present a, a happy front, mm-hmm. if you come in and you're... An, annoying them you're critical you're basically saying she's told me all about you mm, yeah mm. no matter how you feel that's probably not the yeah, best no thing. and yeah in your book you you sum it up as needing to be consistent reliable trustworthy the opposite of him so yes. kind strong and non non-judgmental mm. and that's and, just and show you understand mm. that this you know you you're not ever going to say to somebody why don't you just leave mm-hmm. if they're talking to you and it feels like the conversation's got to that stage where leaving is appropriate um, to talk about i would say gosh, what would happen if you left? Not why don't you? Yeah, because it does very much put the, well, this is your responsibility yes. to leave when actually they have no, they, they don't really have any control in that situation. No. no, they don't. So always what would happen if, what are the consequences of? Yeah. Not okay. why don't you? No, okay. When you are sort of pouring through all of these probably sometimes quite graphic and gory details how do you like jane how do you process that you know i did find myself at the beginning of lockdown thinking oh god i'm so i'm just so grateful because i was seeing the stuff on the news about how the numbers to child line has gone up and the numbers to domestic abuse uh uh telephone charity numbers have gone up and i and i and there is that thing isn't there of um (laughs) that thing of thinking Oh God, I, I'm so glad that I'm safe and, and I'm all right. And and I, it's almost it's almost too much for me to kind of compute and process. Uh, but how how do you deal? How do you deal with that? Um, Don't say vodka. No. <laughs> Can I say gin? Yes, yeah, gin. <laughs> gin and Rothmans. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, I, I'm not the same person I was um, no. 10 years ago even. Mm. So um, my life has, has changed because it's just full of murder. They, I mean, on a daily basis, I'm just dealing with these cases. But I never, ever get used to it. I never, ever do. I spend a lot of time with bereaved family. In fact, most of my friends now are people breathe through homicide mm-hmm. we've formed relationships and you know so this is this is my life now and i think um i spend far too much time angry and frustrated mm. far too much time sad 
and more time now hopeful Mm. as well can i just ask for anybody that's sort of going through a woman that is going through this so yeah rather than you know, someone that you know, than a friend. Mm-hmm. Where can they get support? Well, there are places. Every 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 single place in the UK, anyway, and I and I think it's the same in you know across the world, really. Maybe not in some places. There will be a domestic abuse support service. Mm. You can phone them uh, in complete confidence, and they are not going to say to you, you must report this to the police or you must leave. They are going to talk through your situation with you and perhaps give you some advice on what to do if you ever get to the stage where you do want to leave or what you can do um, to make yourself safer. So Mm -hmm. that, that is definitely, there's every area has that service a lot of them are one run by women's aid but many of them are not so just look if you google my local domestic abuse service yeah okay but there's also uh, there are also um for people who may um their relationships have split up they've left and they're frightened because their ex is stalking them there's you know there are stalking services as well and there is the national domestic abuse helpline and there is the national stalking helpline Mm -hmm. so there's plenty of places you can go to for support and advice you can go to the police Mm -hmm. they you know when you go to the police especially now they're not going to just phone up your partner and say guess what we've heard about you no or, you know no we're actually going to take this all out of your hands and we're going to arrest him and it, it won't be like that and and i the police can um if they consider that you're at quite high risk of harm not necessarily homicide but harm they can form a multi-agency meeting you can speak to your gp you can speak yeah. to nurses in A and E departments. They're all trained now. Okay. So right. you know, okay. disclose somewhere safe, but don't be frightened to disclose. No. Thank yeah. you. And I'm sure that for anybody who is listening, just being able to listen to these things and think, oh shit, mm. th- th- this is my life, or as you were saying before, Louise, somebody that you know. I guess that is a huge stage, isn't it? Mm-hmm. to even breaking out of the, uh, to realising that there is a problem. Yes. Uh, can I just, on a very much lighter note, um, ask you about, I, I read that you <laughs> used to be, I'm just going to, right, so you've done all this academic research, right, and then you've written your book. So yeah. I'm thinking, just you know, so, you know, pretty, all pretty impressive stuff. And then I read that you actually were a lead singer in a rock band for 10 years. Is that correct? I was. <laughs> <laughs> And how fantastic! I'm just like, oh, and I was thinking, well, maybe when we meet her, um, she actually won't turn out to be that nice, or you know, because I'm just like, what? Like, she's really, really clever, and she's written a really good book, and a really, you know, and then now she's. <laughs> It's just like, you are the person that I would like to be. I was going to say, Louise is just jealous, Jane. I'm really jealous. Oh, is that what it is? So, well, you just took 10 years out. You were a police officer. Can you just talk, talk me through that? Because I really am curious. So, <laughs> Yeah, I, I, think what, I think what they call it now is your um, career taking a wiggly path. <laughs> <laughs> really wiggly. A really, really wiggly path. And mine certainly did that. I just, I just, you know, I'd been in the police and it's very um, disciplined, hierarchical, rigid organisation. And um, I just, I just think I, I rebelled against that and just went and did something where there was no rules <laughs> for a while. Yeah. We, we're always talking to people on this podcast about, uh, you know, like you get to that stage in your life. So h- how old were you when the wiggle in the path happened? I was coming up towards, I guess I was about 27, 28. Yeah, right. So I was, yeah. still, I was still young. Yeah. yeah. I was still yeah. young. I was still yeah. young. Yeah. It wasn't a midlife crisis. No, no. okay. Because <laughs> that's what I want to do now, you see. I want to be in a rock band now, but I'm now. 51, which is, yeah. I don't think any rock band, but if there are any rock bands listening, um, I'm up for it, basically. Or up for it. <laughs> you're, you're like uh, P- Professor Debbie Harry. Yes. <laughs> I wish. You know. You are. <laughs> Debbie Harry was my absolute hero. Absolute hero. I'd have given anything to be her, but 
Instead, you're changing the world. (laughs) So this is really important work. And I can totally imagine how you just think, no, I just want to go and, um, what is it, go in the mosh pit? Or... Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, well, we will put um, links to the to the book um, in the show notes uh, because it is, such, it is such a good book. Because as you said at the beginning, you know, reading through, um, uh, you know, research stuff is like, it's not, that's not my bag at all. And, um, and I think I said to you in the email that I got the book on Thursday and I thought, oh, I'll have a skim through because obviously I'm interviewing uh, this this woman. So I'll, I'll and I I didn't have I just ended up just sitting there for like two hours just like turning each page because you're oh, it's good. a fantastically it's a really really good book. It's really interesting and informative and you know um, and Thank it's you. something it kind of just. Yeah, it, I think it's something that obviously we all need to have a conversation about and be aware mm. of. That's what I'm hoping. I want us to, to start having conversations and have different ones to the ones we have been having. Yeah, brilliant. Well, thank mm. you ever so much, Jane. Thank you. Lovely to chat to you. Thank you. A podcast from producer Paul.co.uk. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.